are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everyone, to our study of the Evergatinas. And we're picking up this evening on page 372, letter D at the top of the page from Antiochus. And we've been discussing. Uh, seeking not to be contradictory in our engagement of others, uh, not to be contentious, uh, and to allow love, as it were, to trump uh, personal opinion or private judgment, that we often will cling to it and with a kind of fierceness in our engagement with others, uh, and often setting aside charity. And so the authors here will be speaking about this for the remainder of the hypothesis, and then we'll move into a little section on trusting in the providence of God, uh, great in a sense, more than our own will. And the authors here begin to draw us down this path uh, towards a humility that is that of Christ, that is impregnable, if you will, to the demons. And so all of this is sort of laying the foundation to what we'll be looking at in another two hypotheses. And uh, it's going to be a lot of interesting discussion, I'm sure, and challenging reading. But nonetheless, I think it takes us right to the heart of the gospel. And so again, we're on page 372 at the top of the page. A quarrelsome man is not only never at peace with his kinsfolk, but not even with strangers. Or in his desire to satisfy his quarrelsome way of thinking, he is forever plotting schemes and is constantly angry. Moreover, he also clouds the minds of others, and they all end up hating him. Regarding this type of person, it is written in Genesis, Esau took women of the other tribes to wife, and they were provoking to Isaac and Rebekah. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of the sons of Heth. These passages show that contentiousness and quarrels are fitting to the ungodly and not to the faithful and the pious. And so, you know, in our day and age, this probably seems rather tame. Uh, but nonetheless, the idea of plotting schemes and being constantly angry that in our relations with others, uh, we can uh, often be calculating, I think, in the way that we put things forward and engage in discussions in order to place ourselves on top, as it were, uh, or above another person in, uh, emotionally, intellectually, to gain a position of power. And there is kind of pettiness at, time, at times that can drive us in that regard even about the smallest of things. And when it comes to religion and certainly politics, one might say, uh, it can come, become very fierce. And, uh, and so we have to struggle with, with this um, because the, the author tells us here, the individual becomes hated by all. Uh, he, in engaging in this kind of quarrelsome attitude with not only with one's kinsfolk, but with strangers, it's not long before you wear out your welcome. Uh, it becomes tiresome for individuals to have every conversation become uh, a kind of battle where you're arguing about every, every, everything, whether it's what's going on in the culture, again, politics, religion, 
there can be something that is exhausting about it. Rather than looking for ways to connect to the other and to do so with love. True Christians, he writes, and disciples of Christ emulate their teacher and master concerning whom it is written. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the squares. These blessed people do not attempt to resolve any issue, whatever, with disputes and quarrels, but rather with patience and prayer and with obedience and hope, inspired by the thought that they ought never to impose their opinions, desiring and insisting that their will be done. Moreover, as the Lord said, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. So again, the Father's all always draw us back to the standard who's Christ. And uh, I love the quote from Isaiah. And it's on this quote that the old believer Orthodox developed this icon called Holy Silence. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've ever seen it before, but it's quite beautiful. And it often depicts Christ uh, in angelic form with wings. Uh, but one of the reasons for it is precisely this, that he will not quarrel or cry out, uh, nor will anyone hear his voice in the squares, that he will not quench uh, a burning wick, that Christ is the humble lowly one. He came not to dispute, he came not to do battle, but rather to love, and not to put forward in a willful way his, his, uh, himself, but rather to, to do the will of the Father, even at the sacrifice of his own life. And so in our daily encounters with others, this is what should be sh shaping our thoughts. Uh, does the weight of what I'm talking about uh, outweigh uh, the, the necessity of maintaining love and a spirit of humility? Uh, is what I'm saying so important that it is worth jeopardizing friendship or civility? And... Uh, we often see a kind of weightiness to our own words, that we exaggerate the importance of them. Not that we aren't meant to have conversation with others, but I think there has to be a realization that, you know, that we take opportune moments to discuss things, say, for example, about the faith, uh, to clarify maybe misunderstandings about the faith, and then to be at peace about that. The faith is a gift. And we might be one part of a way that God draws an individual to faith, uh, but we are not going to argue them into it. And we're certainly not going to argue them into it in a kind of violent fashion where we force it upon them. You remember quote, me, uh, quoting, I think it was last time, uh, St. John Henry Newman, that it is absurd to think that we could argue a person into the faith as it is to believe that we could torture them into believing. And it, it always seemed ironic to me that this is something that Newman would write given the power of his intellect and the breadth of his writing. Uh, his correspondence is unequaled. I think by, uh, I, certainly in modern times, there's no equal for it. And so he, he really took the opportunity to engage others about the faith and to lay out his belief. We, we know that when he was attacked for his conversion to Catholicism, that he writes in a very public way his Apologia Provita Sua, the apology for his life, and which was published in the papers of the time. It's sort of interesting uh, that there was an age where that something like that would take place, where there would be a religious kind of dispute or discussion that would take place in a public forum. But Newman, he said it almost flowed out of him when he, he wrote it. And so he would write a portion of it that then would be published in the public papers. Uh, and uh, in response to something that somebody had written about him, calling into question his conversion. But he never does this with any kind uh, of hostility, that he lays things out in order that people can see what was within his heart, that there was a kind of transparency there, 
that they could uh, do with as they will, uh, but not to seek to overcome them, as it were, by force or to uh, criticize them harshly. Laura writes, not sure how to do this in real life. Last week, I pitched a battle at work and won, and it was no petty matter. I think it takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment to do this well. Me, I was lucky. There are times I think that we are, are lucky, and there are times that we find ourselves almost driven by a kind of force within us to enter into these discussions, especially when they do have great weight. And when they are about a teaching about the faith that uh, is of great import and we feel compelled to engage in discussion, but sometimes the discussion, uh, as you said, becomes a pitched battle, you know, that uh, becomes very fierce. And uh, I think this is where we need to, to be able to slow things down and listen to what the fathers are telling us about patience about uh, prayerfulness and a kind of trust in the providence of God uh, when we engage others, that this has more power to move the mind and the heart, as does our witness in, in a concrete way to how we live our life, has more power to move the, the human mind and heart than our words. And in some ways, even silence does, if it is filled with Christ, if it is filled with the peace of Christ and the peace of the kingdom. Uh, St. Seraphim of Seraph is quoted as saying that, if you have the peace of Christ within your heart, you will convert thousands. Which, again, is a very striking thought that one can be so filled with the love of the kingdom and the love of Christ that there's something about one's countenance, one's very being, that speaks to the other uh, when we encounter them. And that takes a great deal of not only discernment, but I think more of trust. Okay, here I am. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. For some reason, we just cut out unexpectedly. And uh, I don't know, there are storms that are going through Pennsylvania right now. And so I think that's part of the reason. Uh, but let's see, where was I? I was talking about, oh, the silence. Uh, did you hear me when I was talking about the silence of the monk? When you didn't hear that part either. Okay. So when a disciple brought uh, guests to the kind of the solitary uh, skeet of his master. You know, there were often those who were curious and who wanted to hear a word of wisdom from one of these elders. And so when the disciple brought these individuals, the elders sat there silent and until they left. And so the disciple comes back rather frustrated and asks, you know, why didn't you say anything to them? And he said, well, if they were not edified by my silence, they are certainly not going to be edified by what I say. That there's something about a silence that is filled with the love of God and the desire for God that is incredibly power and provocative and speaks to the human heart. And it takes a lot of trust, a lot of faith to believe in that. That what God does within us is more powerful than we imagine or could ever imagine that we could do on our own. And uh, often we, his, it's what he's doing within us that accomplishes more than what we do by our activity. And again, this is something hard to believe that uh, I think I mentioned once here before that it's been said that what we see in the saints, what they do, even what is miraculous or what they say is the least part of them. That what God does internally by his grace, in terms of transforming them, transfiguring them uh, in the sense of deification, of drawing them into this deep and intimate union with himself, is certainly far greater than something we could see or perceive at work within them. And so this is something I think that should increase our trust in the providence of God. Even when things are going 
ill, ill for us when we are finding ourselves experiencing failure or frustration, that none of these things are obstacles to the, the will of God being accomplished. And so often when the impediment of our own pride or of our own ego is removed, God can bring about extraordinary things. And so often it is out of crises or what seems to be apparent failure that something will come to fruition, something will bl blossom uh, that is beautiful and that is clearly by the action of God in our life. And this is the path that the fathers are trying us to draw us along, that we, we can be ever so willful in our engagement of others, more than trying to embrace the will of God for us in our own life. And the will of God for us is to love him and to love others and to give ourselves in love, uh, not to argue them in uh, to, to right belief in according with our own understanding, not to diminish, you know, orthodoxy in the sense of, uh, you know, our accurate understanding of divine revelation. Uh, but we often will sacrifice or, you know, the, the deeper meaning of orthodoxy, which is right glory, that this is what is essential for us to put on the, the glory of God, uh, to conform ourselves to, to Christ and to put on the mind of Christ in such a way that that's what people see and that that's who they encounter in us. And, uh, and so this is the, this, the perspective that the fathers are, are teaching us from here is that we, we emphasize this right glory that comes through the ascetic life and living the gospel. Uh, this is what is transforming. Okay, again, sorry for the interruption. There, uh, for those who joined us, we are on page 372 with letter E. If you are living with a brother and you want something to be done, but the brother with whom you live does not want it to be done, <laughs> then you should submit your own will to him in order to avoid quarreling and distress. Towards your brother, you should be as a temporary sojourner. Do not give him orders in anything and do not wish to appear higher than he. If he enjoins you to do something you do not want to do, fight against your will until you do what you have been bidden to do, so that you may not grieve him and lose your harmonious and peaceful coexistence with him. If you say, if he says to you, cook me something, ask him gently, what do you want me to make? And if he leaves it up to you, replying, what, make whatever you want, then with fear of God, prepare what is available. I think that brother would be sorely disappointed if he asked me to cook him something. Uh, uh, of course, if it's the will of God, then he should enjoy it. Uh, but uh, this idea of coexistence, you know, I, I think in our own day and age, it's taken on uh, this, this kind of meaning uh, that, again, is almost a kind of nihilism. You know, creating reality for ourselves. We want to peacefully coexist as if we don't ever talk about anything or we aren't bearing witness to something or someone in particular. But what the fathers mean here is, again, that we uh, allow love to be that which shapes all things. It's, it's this that endures unto eternity. And it is this that is transformative. And so we want to protect it as something that is precious. This harmony that exists between ourselves and others often is heart one. And it can be easily lost simply by a, a harsh look, a harsh word, uh, being combative about simple things as to when to do something or you know, whether or not uh, we want to, to cook or do something that somebody asked us to do. And, uh, you know, what does it hurt us in the long run to, to let go of our point of view? And what is truly gained by our supposedly winning an argument? It might be in our own minds, this kind of satisfaction uh, 
but how long does that endure? And is it something that goes any further than our own minds and our hearts? Does it bear fruit that is acceptable to God? Remember James again saying, the anger of man does not bear fruit acceptable to God. That whatever is said in anger, in this kind of hostility toward the other, even if it be true, will not bear fruit that is pleasing to God. Uh, you know, we can't, uh, the fathers often say, put what it put to right in others, what is warped within ourselves. Uh, and so if our own hearts are wounded by pride and arrogance, what makes us think that we are some, somehow going to be the, the physician that heals that in another in, individual? Uh, so if anything, we should see ourselves as those who are sojourning, as he says, together here. Sort of like uh, when the 10 lepers uh, are journeying together. One of them is a Samaritan. You know, so, so something unusual takes place. The, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And, uh, and yet their common poverty of leprosy brought them to Christ. Their acknowledgement that he alone was the one who could bring them healing. And of course, the story tells us it was the, the one, the Samaritan, that was the one alone who came back to give thanks. Uh, again, you know, Christ sort of making this point that, uh, you know, we, we can be arrogant in, even in our faithfulness. Uh, and it's very hard to break it down. And they, the, the ones who suffer from that kind of pride sort of take hold of the healing, pocket it, and run away with it. There's only one who comes back uh, to kneel down at the feet of Christ and to give him thanks. And so again, th this is the attitude that we are to cultivate. Isaiah goes on to say, if during your conversations you mention some passage of scripture, let the one who knows the passage submit his will to his brother, for in this way he will give rest and joy to his brother. For the deeper meaning of any passage that you should hum is that you should humble yourself in all things before your brother. You know, if I posted this online, I'd probably be ripped to shreds. <laughs> it's sort of a curious thing because he's saying that if you're talking about the Holy Scriptures and you know what's being said with a greater clarity, there's a greater value in humbly submitting your will to another, that the act of humility is far more powerful than you succeeding in getting your point across, across to the other and changing his mind. And in my mind, that's an extraordinary thing because it's saying that the virtue itself, the virtue in reality, is what has power to move the human heart. And so to love, to humble ourselves, to be obedient, these are the things that we are should be seeking to do. And when we overly intellectualize, when we turn the faith into a certain ideology or philosophy, then that truth begins to break down for us and uh, in terms of living it out. And uh, we turn back uh, to making it an, uh, an intellectual exercise that our communication of the faith is telling people about Jesus rather than engaging them like Jesus, rather than, than loving them. And so our starting point in evangelization is often the exact wrong place. It should be personal conversion. and. Uh, I mentioned recently that I put pinned to the the my uh, my pages on Facebook and Twitter this little quote from the Jesuit Irene Hasher, who says any renewal within the church has always begun with the Desert Fathers, and it's precisely because they draw us so quickly back to the heart of the gospel, back to Christ. And uh, this orthopraxis, how it is that we exercise our faith in reality, and it comes to life in them. They become like living icons of the gospel for us. 
And this is what is to uh, sort of set us on fire as well. The, the desire to become exactly that, living icons of Christ within the world, that those who see us see Christ and see in and through us the, 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 the glory and the joy of the kingdom. And if that isn't accomplished, then, you know, every word is going to be for naught. He who constantly keeps in mind the judgment which he will face at the impartial tribunal of the judge who will appear at the second coming will do whatever he can from henceforth to make sure that his mouth is not sealed at that fearful hour, thus having no defense to put forth. And so we never want to lose sight of the fact that we will have to stand before Christ and bear witness to how it is that we've loved others. We're not going to be asked, you know, how many miracles that we've performed or, you know, how well we, we taught the faith. We're going to be asked how well we loved and gave ourselves and love. And uh, it will be the poor who become our advocates at the judgment seat of God, the ones that we've served, the ones that we've cared for, the vulnerable uh, in our world those who are most deeply wounded are the ones who will come to our defense. They will be our words before, before God. If you wish to go out to do some small task, do not let one brother ignore the other or go out alone, leaving his brother in his cell to be beset by remorse. Let him say to his brother with love, do you want us to go out together? If he sees that his brother is resting at that hour or is physically ill, let him not quarrel by saying, we must go out now, but let him postpone the task and return to his cell out of compassionate love for his brother. Be sure that you do not oppose your brother in any matter, lest you cause him distress. So again, an interesting thing that we often will have our projects that we want to accomplish. And others for one reason or another can seem to be an obstacle to our fulfilling that desire. You know, whether it's like this, you know, that we, a brother is ill or is resting, uh, we can be tempted to, you know, break from that relationship in the sense of go it alone, not even tell them about it. And so a breakdown of charity and not communicate what we want to do because we don't want to be held back. We don't want to be dragging dead weight with us, as it were. And love doesn't think, again, in those kinds of, of ways that there would be something so important for us to fulfill that it would be greater and more important than our care of, of another. And again, in a day and age, I think that puts so much value on what is accomplished, what is fulfilled on any given day uh, that, you know, we can trample over people and look, you know, look right past them where we don't see them. And, you know, especially when we have our phones, you know, our, our faces buried in our cell phones, we're often thinking to ourselves, well, we're, we're communicating with some something to someone or we're doing something, uh, accomplishing something purpose, you know, uh, important, purposeful or important. And yet we can be ignoring that which is real and that which is in the moment. You know, I think parents probably know this uh, best because they're forced to do it in so many different ways that you can't live for, for yourself. And, you know, if your child gets sick, your plan, you're not going anywhere that night. And, you know, or if you have to get up in the middle of the night because your child is crying uh, and needs to be consoled, you, you do it. And, uh, and at, at first, that can be very hard, hard in the sense of setting aside one's own will and not becoming resentful over it, but seeing it as an act of love and finding fulfillment in the giving of, of oneself to another. And I think this is where the evil one will trip us up 
he will th we will think he leads us to think that if we give ourselves uh, in an unrestrained fashion, we will find ourselves wanting and impoverished. Whereas when we do love and give ourselves in love, that God pours forth even greater grace upon us, throws into our, our lap in abundance what is needed until it's overflowing, we are told. And, uh, and yet because of our lack of faith, we will often hold back in, uh, in our work and uh, things that people ask of us or ask us to do. We'll hold back something for ourselves or we will tell ourselves you know, that uh, you know, the, what we have to do is more important than uh, taking care of their need. And you know, it was interesting. I saw a man interviewing people on the, in the, the street about immigrants coming into their country. And you know, I know the guy had a personal agenda about this, but it was sort of an interesting little experiment. He was there were people there was a group of people protesting, uh, wanting you know the free free uh, entrance of immigrants into their country. But he was stopping and asking people, "Are you willing to uh, house them? Are you willing to take one into your house and sponsor them to provide a room for them?" And across the board, people would say, "Well, if I had the room, I would," or "I rent." So I couldn't do it. Every person he asked that question to. And, and so I'm not, I don't want to be critical of others here because I think it's right beneath the surface with us too, that we often can come up when it comes down to it, when as it were the rubber hits the road, that we often aren't willing to follow through with what it is we say we believe. And that can be eminently true about our Christian beliefs. It's one thing to talk about unconditional love. And it's another thing to live it, especially when we are being talked to in a certain way or being insulted, or when people are asking for something that we, we don't want to part with. And we hear these stories uh, uh, that bring this into relief for us where robbers come and they come into a monk's cell and they steal everything and they beat him up and they, but they miss something. And he runs out after them and saying, wait, wait, you forgot to take this with you. And, you know, on some level, it seems like an absurdity to us, but it stretches our understanding, our reason to the breaking point, very much like something like the Beatitudes do or the teachings that are a part of the Sermon of the Mount. You know, right after Jesus teaches the Beatitudes is when he also says, do not resist one who is evil. And whenever you stop and think about that, you think, oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's completely nuts. And if pushed, uh, we, would probably, we would probably not only think that, but act upon it. And I've, millions of times I've had little fantasies, daydreams about, you know, arguments that I would have with somebody, or if I were attacked by somebody here at the rectory or somewhere on the street, you know, of how I might respond. And uh, it's often difficult to put oneself in that position where one would seek to respond in a Christ-like fashion. And the cross always stands before us is as not only something compelling, but that is con convicting to us that with arms wide open, this radical vulnerability, you know, spit upon, beaten, you know, uh, crowned with the thorns and, you know, that and even mocked in this way, you know, or if you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. And yet he does not. And our tendency, I think, is to think of what Christ does or what Christ has done for us, that redemptive work as being something done for us, but that we live at a distance from it. We abstract ourselves from, from it. This is something took place 2,000 place, 2,000 years ago for us. 
in a different place in time. And it has nothing to do with us in terms of how we live our day-to-day -day life, that we are not called into that radical love, even when we receive it in the Holy Eucharist. Anthony writes, I do have a concern. I don't want to be a sucker and I resent having been taken for a sucker. That helps drive my engaging religious and cultural discussions, and it's why I'm careful in what charitable works I agree to do. Right. And to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so to think things through, and when somebody's asking you for money, you know, do you give it to them, especially when you smell alcohol on their breath or, or you're, you pretty much suspect that it's going to be used for, for drugs. And on the level of reason, again, and, uh, and then even one's own personal well-being, we might say, yes, of course, we don't want to be duped and indiscriminately give, you know, what we could give to help others in true need. Uh, but oftentimes there are those that we meet on the street where we are still called to engage them as human beings and engage them with love to see Christ within them. And I heard one priest once say, it's always to err on this, better to err on the side of charity. If you're walking down the block and somebody asks you for a couple of bucks and you might think to yourself, well, they're going to go out and buy a bottle of whiskey with that. One might say to oneself just as easily, well, so what? Maybe that's what's going to keep him warm that night. Maybe that's his only comfort. Or, or maybe we are bound by love to engage on a deeper level, you know, to talk to that person over the course of time and to, to seek to engage them in such a way that we can bring them real help. But that requires kind of investment. Uh, where it would really throw us out of our own lives when we have our work to do. And, you know, it's interesting as a priest to see it within myself that, you know, you can fill your schedule with many different things, appointments, groups, preparing for retreats, packet, where you're going from morning to night, and you might be incredibly exhausted by it, and one might say to oneself that it's all for God. But it can also be busyness uh, can be a form of escape from reality. You know, Thomas Merton said that it's the, you know, sort of the modern violence that man does to himself. But I think it could go even further than that on both the spiritual and psychological level. If we make ourselves busy, then we can always tell people, I just don't have the time. I'm sorry. Or I would, but I have this, that, and the other thing to do, uh, which might pull us out of our comfort zone or keep us from doing the very things, again, that we think are mo most important to us, that will pull us out of living in the moment and engaging the person in the moment because we have all these other things lined up that would be thrown off if we do not respond. And uh, I don't wanna be cavalier about this because I, I know we have responsibility and responsibility to others, but at times we have to be soul searching in the sense of asking ourselves, what am I doing and, and why? And is, is this out of love? Uh, and is it bearing the fruit that God desires? Am I doing this in a discerning way? Other, in, other, in other words, you know, have I, through purity of heart, gained a kind of discernment that would allow me to see with a greater clarity the things of the kingdom, that would allow the, me to hear the word of God in the way that he desires that I hear it, to draw me where he wants to take me? And so often we will build a structure around ourselves because we are much, much more comfortable with boundaries. And believe it or not, our homes, our jobs, the life that we create, our own little world, you know, we can create these boundaries around ourselves that nobody can get through, nobody that we don't want to get through. And uh, 
you know, it's interesting, you know, living in the city for 40 years and living at a Catholic center, the people that would come through the door on, on occasion, uh, you know, it's, and asked to speak to a priest, uh, there are times where there's part of you that wants to avoid it because the problem is so extreme or, or you, again, you have other things to do, or you've had experiences like the ones you described. I remember a priest, his name is Father Drew from my old community that uh, he, there was a guy who was walking down the middle of the street, his pants were hanging off of him and he had a big, excuse me, booger hanging from his nose halfway down. And so Father Drew saw him and he went, simply went over to say, you know, can I help you? Can I do anything for you? And there was a psychological problem there. And the guy became enraged, you know, started cursing, you know, and coming at him. And so I think at times when we have those experiences as well, that can be frightening and off-putting, they could become the lens then that prevents us uh, from responding on, on other occasions. And the evil one can use these things. Louise. Uh, I have a personal experience that comes to mind that could um, describe the do not resist evil. Mm -hmm. I was in a group many years ago, uh, we're discussing spiritual matters. And one woman that I, for several, quite a long time, I've noticed that she liked to have ascendance over people to come and control and be like the spiritual guide and she was better than everybody else. And um, she came to me and she said, you know, I can help you with that question of yours. You um, please call me. <laughs> and I remain very, very much at peace. I know she was cunning and just trying to. And I, I, I stayed in my peace with Christ and I looked at her gently smile and I said, I thank you for your offer, but I will not call. And suddenly I had a vision, which is her soul or the demon inside of her, the most ugly being I've ever seen, who, who went like big eyes, completely frightened by my reaction. I did not resist. Mm -hmm. I stayed with Christ and the demon ran away mm -hmm. and she did too physically. Mm -hmm. So do you think that might exemplify what Christ was saying? I think so, because I, I think, you know, often, you know, the evil one will take what is ascendant within us, psychologically as well as spiritually, and where there can be a kind of profound narcissism or, you know, this desire to control and uh, or to manipulate. Uh, that can take hold of us if we allow this habit of mind to prevail, uh, to seeing ourselves as above the other, to approach others in this condescending way, rather than as a poor brother or poor sister. And, uh, and when the, uh, the light of Christ shines upon that, the response can be ever so fierce. And I think sometimes uh, I've heard it said that often those who are quarrelsome or are given over to anger can't stand individuals who seem to have this constant peace about them that don't get stirred up uh, into conflict over every issue. It almost becomes an affront to them to the, to the point that then, then they become the focal point of that individual's rage. And, uh, and so we have to be careful, I think, in those circumstances about what is driving the individual. And even the fathers say, sometimes it's more the demon that is provoking the action than the individual at certain points. Uh, and what you described seems to be exactly that, that you know, what is driving the interaction there is something that is dark and malicious. 
And I think when, it's, when it becomes dark and malicious is where we do want to withdraw. It's one of the, the only things that the fathers describe is where we would want to separate ourselves from others is where there is envy and uh, where a kind of malice begins to emerge where one does not only want what the other has, but if they can't, will seek to destroy it. And, uh, and so, but you're, I think what you're describing here is something that we often see and also that we need to see within ourselves. When we find ourselves reacting to someone, uh, maybe not in the way that you, you describe, but when we see our, ourselves reacting to someone in a particular way, uh, where it seems even atypical for ourselves, we have to wonder, you know, wh where is this, what is the spirit that is guiding us in this interaction? And I think the examples here that are, are given are, are very good about not quarreling, that there, there can be a little bit of a pleasure that we take in that, you know, of stirring some, something up. I had a young priest tell me once, sometimes chaos is a good thing. And I think he was trying to be clever uh, on, on one hand, but to sort of say, well, it's, you know, I think he's trying to say it's good to stir things up. And I don't think the fathers would agree with that, uh, that we, we are not called to bring about change through quarrel and by stirring things up or creating chaos, being an agent of chaos in our communities. We are called to be agents of peace and love and mercy and compassion. And, uh, and so often, uh, even in our religiosity, we might put on, you know, put that on as a mask, hiding something much deeper, which is self-serving. And I think that's what they're trying to unmask here, that you know, our willingness to postpone a task can, uh, or you know, our unwillingness to postpone it can seem can trump our the needs of other people, and not just other people, but for us, Christ in the other as well. What you did for the least of these, my brothers and my sisters. You did for me. Okay, a couple of comments here. Uh, Maureen Cunningham, what about the book, The Way of the Pilgrim? How would you, you say the Jesus Prayer, the Jesus Prayer in silence? Uh, I think often it's done verbally in order that it might be take deep root, involving more of the senses, that we hear ourselves praying it and we are able to stay focused when praying it audibly. But there is a time when I, I think when it does become internalized so deeply that it begin, there isn't the need for the audible part of it, where there is simply the movement of desire. Even the words of the prayer itself can begin to slip away when it becomes so deeply rooted. This movement toward God and the remembrance of God, the Jesus prayer and the name of Jesus is simply that which aids us. Uh, because even the name of our Lord uh, is a kind has a kind of sacramental power, if you will, uh, that uh, can open up the pathway towards Him and draw us away from things that are sources of temptation or frustration. But the deeper that love becomes, the less of an impediment we have within us, the freer it becomes, and uh, silence in some way uh, is able to capture you know, more of what's within us. Our words are always going to be something that are confining. And silence becomes something that isn't something that we are uncomfortable with, but gives us that freedom to love and express our love more fully. Uh, Paul writes, I see people walk in to help with food, gas, or money quite regularly. Many I know for a fact are gaming the system and really gets, gets me at times. I have this quote written down from Mother Teresa to reflect on for those times. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. Right, so, so simple. 
And it is sort of like that priest saying, you know, better to err on the side of charity. That if we do stop to, to judge and to scrutinize the behavior, then we lose sight of the person. And it might be a very real poverty that is leading them to, as you say, gaming the system, to game the system, to play the system. And that might be very true, but still what we are to see in them is our Lord and respond to them as, as if they are our Lord. And uh, this is what requires faith from us and you know, to tr treat others with this kind of dignity. Okay. If you live with others and are doing any kind of handiwork, whether inside or outside your cell, and your brother calls you, do not say to him, wait a little while so that I can finish this handiwork, but obey him at once. If you are living with someone and are being offered hospitality and you receive some command for the sake of God, be careful not to resent this command and do not transgress it either secretly or openly. And so that, that, that last part of it stings, rather, what, you know, whether secretly or, or openly, that we can in our hearts be very resentful when somebody commands something of us that is, again, is at an inopportune time that prevents us from doing our handiwork or what is needed. And, uh, and so we, we don't want to give way to the thought uh, and conceal the resentment, but rather lay it before Christ in order that it might be uprooted as well. If you live with your spiritual father or with a brother, be sure that you do not secretly maintain a friendship with someone which you do not want your brothers who live with you to know about. For in this way, you lead both yourself and him into perdition. In the way that an animal is subject to a man, every man should be subject to his brother for the sake of God. Just as the animal does not have a will or its own mind, so also should I act not only before the one with whom I live, but also before him who oppresses, opposes me. And I should submit my judgment to him who is ignorant and my will to him who is foolish. Then I will know myself with precision and will understand what it is that human harms me. He who has confidence in his own virtue and rectitude and insists on his will cannot avoid enmity, nor can he have respite of soul or see his deficiencies. Such a person, when he departs from his body, that is when he dies, will have difficulty finding compassion from God. Wow, this is a hard one. So the first part might be a little difficult to understand, you know, a particular friendship. And it's often spoken about in the context of religious communities, where one will have a favored individual within the community that is such that it draws them away from the care of others emotionally and physically, that they like this person better on a level of sensibility, that they hold all these things in common. And so they, they want to be with others and they sort of create their little community off on the side and often do so in a hidden way in order that it might not be called into question, that the, the, the lack of charity in that might be, not be called into question. And so uh, Isaiah is telling us here that, you know, there has to be a way that we love others that does not give into a baser desire to exclude everyone we dislike or who does not offer us anything or who a relationship with cost us something in order to be satisfied on the level of, of sensibility uh, through the relationships that we choose for ourselves. So as Christian men and women, we cannot be overly selective, as it were, with those, uh, of those with whom we engage. And, you know, a lot, I know a lot of people have problems with things that Pope 
Francis says and does. But one of the things that he's constantly communicated from the beginning of his pontificate is the importance of engaging the other, the person. And, you know, I think people are concerned about this because there's a fear that if we emphasize this to such a point that we will set aside the truth that will be drawn into error. And uh, this on some level uh, can be true where there is a lack of discernment, but we have to trust that, that love in itself is something that illuminates for us. And that in loving others and giving ourselves in love allows us to see something about them, no matter what kind of life they've lived and even still find themselves immersed in, that we are able to see their goodness is created in the image and likeness of God. And that this is something so precious for us to hold on to that, uh, you know, it when we are drawn towards it, it feels like we're being pulled off balance because the things that make us feel secure, like having a clear understanding of what is true, what is right and wrong, and not to diminish that in any way, but I think having a clear sense of that can lead us into again into that comfortable position where we can marginalize those we choose to marginalize or to marginalize ourselves in such a way that we never have to engage somebody that we do not like or who has a lifestyle that uh, is uncomfortable for us or that is sinful. That what we are called to do is love and to be able to see the goodness of God in the other and to act as he, he did. You know, it's, you know, most everything, he, he takes it to the extreme, and we see the saints doing it well, touching the dead, touching lepers, uh, engaging a Samaritan woman alone in conversation, you know, uh, allowing a woman to touch him, defending a woman caught in adultery, having dinner with known sinners, tax collectors, harlots. You know, all of these things would have made people shrink back, tear their garments, and really hold him in suspicion. And in some ways, probably dumbfounded the, the people that Christ engaged. You know, what are you doing? What are you talking to me for? You know, you're the, you're the saint, I'm the sinner. You know, they, they, they tell themselves and probably tell him, you know, what, why are you engaging me whatsoever? I, I don't deserve it. And, uh, but the Isaiah, along with other monks here, is that tells us that we, we can't have this confidence in our own rectitude, in our own goodness, that it places us above and beyond others and frees us from this uh, obligation to love. And uh, we see it in the apostles at times, you know, the esteem with which they held themselves, you know, because they, you know, we've left everything, Lord, what shall we get? What are we gonna get out of this? You know, that they see themselves doing what other people had not, done and so deserving a position that is right or left in his kingdom or you know because they're traveling with him and see his power that they can they they, they can participate in it in their own will so do, trying to do miracles outside of his knowledge or participation or calling fire down from heaven to consume samaritans that insulted him and so Isaiah is telling us here, you know, we can't have this such a confidence in our goodness that we are, are willing to throw ourselves in a state of enmity with others. 
that again, we, we have to hold the other's dignity in such value that even in the face of hostility, we, we, we cannot allow ourselves to give it up. And so he says, do not be quarrelsome, brother, lest every evil dwell inside you. And do not consider yourself wise, lest you fall into the hands of your enemies. Accustom your tongue to saying, forgive me, and humility then come upon you. You will submit your will to your neighbor, that is because your mind sees his virtues. Contrarywise, if you insist on your own will and stand in opposition to your neighbor, you display your ignorance. So there, there's something that is ever so blinding about even this most subtle form of confidence in our own virtue, that it prevents us from seeing the essential thing. And this is what the evil one seeks to stir up with, within our hearts, that you know, after living and seeking to live the spiritual life for a period of time, and maybe even moving away from the, the vices, the passions that have had a grip on us, we can begin to think of ourselves uh, in, in such a way that we, we lose sight of where that grace has come from. And we, again, lose sight of the dignity of others. And we see it even in Paul, you know, where, where he, he talks about allowing themselves to, to eat food that has been dedicated to idols. And he says, we, we do well to humble ourselves, uh, not to please ourselves. That is not to make us, oh, I'm so humble, I'm not going to pay attention to this, and so I'm going to sit down with these individuals. We do well to do this for the, for the sake of Christ, that we set aside our sensibilities at times for the sake of, of being able to engage others in love and to sustain that love. And because the things have become so divisive in our culture, within the church, and uh, because we've become so unmoored uh, from the gospel and from the spiritual tradition, I, I think it constantly places us at odds with these teachings and more importantly with living them. Because we fear that if we give ourselves in love, again, we're either going to be so impoverished that we're going to find ourselves wanting and our life jeopardized, or we're going to be drawn into some grave error uh, or heresy by doing so. Unless we're constantly and publicly rebuking certain things about what others are doing. Any thoughts or comments? Laura Lee, I love this message, but in the moment, I forget them. Uh, that's right, in the moment, it's hard. But that's precisely, I think we're the fathers and where Christ tells us we must live our life. It's the only thing that's real. You know, the past, it's gone. We can't do anything about it. The future, we don't know what it's going to be. All that we can see is right before, what is right before us. And we often will, will forget what we are called to do and to be in those moments. We are to be love. And in the same way that we've talked about prayer, you know, we're not called to do it as a discipline. We're to become prayer. You know, those who are wrapped in the love of God and this constant communion. And it's in this constant communion that then we gain this capacity to love others and not to forget not only God in the moment, but God present in the other. And so find ourselves being able to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable. That's, that's what's extraordinary. That that's what's heavenly virtue. Now, I think our go-to position is back to natural virtue. Even the highest form of it is preferable at times in our, in our experience to living the gospel fully. So a lot to think about here. And uh, again, when we come back to it, 
don't hesitate to bring forward questions about it or concerns. Uh, I really want us to spend time again with this and th these sections on humility, uh, you know, of trusting in the providence of God and here about not being contentious uh, are so ever so important, but also so very difficult to embrace. Okay. Any final comments? If not, we'll close there. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.